0: He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed.
1: If Jesus of Nazareth were here today, would we be drawn to follow him? He was not successful, he was poor. Homeless, not attractive, likely wore worn down and ragged clothes like this, was not wealthy, we're told at the end of his life he was betrayed, dying with no earthly status. The last few Years of his life would be filled with conflict with the religious leaders, conflict with political leaders. He died naked in a horrific, painful, humiliating death on a Roman cross as a criminal condemned to die. Today, he would look more like a poor migrant worker than like you and I. Some of us have a hard time seeing the real Jesus. We all imagine him to be like us in our own image. We have falsely understood the victorious Christian life. Perhaps we have thought of Jesus more like the huge statue in South Korea that has him as a superhuman A handsome bodybuilder looking really good and with really big muscles. While Jesus certainly would have drawn the crowds, it was not because of his appearance. He certainly would have been strong as a carpenter, but this would not have been what drew people to him. Friends, we must not fail today to see who Jesus is as fully human, experiencing incredible humiliation through his entire life, because if we don't understand who he is, we will not understand what he has done for us. So who was he really? Yes, indeed, we have seen he was a great prophet, a priest, a king, but what would this have looked like? Well, he came as a fragile baby. He came into this world weak and helpless, like the most vulnerable among us, baby chariot, have another infant here with us today. Jesus would have nursed, peed, pooped. He would have needed to grow like all of us. He would have had bodily changes over time. He would have hit puberty, and he would have had an awkward voice change uh, like the rest of us men. Um, In his early teenage years, he would uh, literally have his attention averted from his family. For good reason, unlike many teenagers today. Throughout his adult life, you would have been able to see him as a rather ordinary Jewish man. Like many of the Jews, he would have had a uh, a um, a nose that, that would rise midway through. You could easily find him on a daily basis working with his father, Joseph. In his family business, there in the carpenter shop, occasionally taking trips back to his kampong in Bethlehem. Maybe we can handle this. Maybe we can understand this part. But we also know that he was unliked, he was rejected. He was a man who was regularly filled with grief, such that his life was summarized by being a man of sorrows. The kind of person that people hide their face. You know, that kind of person when you're walking to the train station. You see that very poor beggar on the street and it's hard for you to look at him. Especially in the latter parts of Jesus' life, this would have been Jesus. He was despised by the most popular, the most respected in society. The media would bash him and call him Crazy. So let's be honest. If Jesus grew up in your hometown, you would be tempted to be ashamed of him. But why is it like this? Many of us are very uncomfortable that the Son of God would come in such a lowly way. In such a humiliating way. How did we get to this place? Well, we're going to spend some extra time looking at the context of our verse today in Isaiah. Going all the way back to chapter 1. The book of Isaiah begins this way after giving the setting. It says this. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have reared children, brought them up but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its own manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So the whole book of Isaiah is this charge of rebellion against Israel and revealing to them the subsequent consequences that are going to come due to their sin. Namely, the Babylonian exile. Isaiah 47 lays out this painful background, but also highlighting that Babylon too will be judged, but it gives us a little bit of a picture of Babylon. Not only is Babylon in rebellion, but not only is Israel in rebellion, but Babylon, listen to this description in verse 8. Now, therefore, hear this, you lovers of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. Then, continuing on in verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am. And there is no one beside me. These Babylonians are acting in a despicable way, in a shameful way, and yet they feel no shame. They're lovers of pleasure. They're carrying on as if they are God, as if they are the great I am. And they think no one will see them, they think they're going to get away with their evil. no shame Israel no better just as we saw in chapter 1 God says in chapter 48 the end of verse 8 for surely i knew that you would sh- that you would excuse me for i knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel again and again The Lord would say, you have profaned my name and you have no shame. Yet, yet so striking is the salvation promised in chapter 49, verse 7. It is said that a servant is going to come, one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. Not just by those outside of Israel, but by the nation of Israel and the servant of rulers. Then we come to chapter 50, 50. And here Israel is described as a divorced woman. It says this, Behold your iniquities, you were sold. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away like an abandoned wife, like an abandoned children, which in the ancient world would have meant poverty. It would have meant helplessness. How did they get here? Because of their sin. Because of their sin. And Israel would be disgraced and left alone with no one to help them. Now chapter 51. Summing it all up, God's people are described as being in a wilderness, a a desert, and they're experiencing devastation, destruction, destruction. Famine and sword because of their sin. And again, they have no one to help them. And, and, and it describes it like this. It describes them like a drunk man stumbling through the streets. Just utterly humiliating. They are unclean. And in this context, in this context of filth, of devastation, of shame and humiliation. Christ comes. The Savior is going to come. As Dr. Leong mentioned, that good news, that announcement of good news, guess where it happens? In this context. In chapter 51. So then we come to chapter 52, which is, again, this is the backdrop. And we read this very interesting news of the servant of the Lord who is coming. This is the background of today's message. It is the background of next week's message. Read Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. Follow along as I read Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 15. Behold... My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Verse 13. A servant. Verse, the second half of verse 13. An exalted one. Strange paradox. Again and again. Verse then 14. Even more strange. He's marred He's even unrecognizable as a a human. And then verse 15, again, strange paradox. He's going to sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Next week, we will fix our eyes on his exaltation. But before we do this, we must fix our eyes that this coming one, this coming deliverer is going to be a servant prophet, priest, and king. How is this going to be manifested? What is it going to look like? It's going to be look like as one who is a servant. Now, when we talk about offices, when we talk about titles, right? We we tend to assume respectability. Someone that's that's put up high, right? Honor, right? But it is very striking how the scriptures portray how these offices will be fulfilled. He will fulfill these offices by taking on the form of a servant. Strikingly, he's taking on the appearance of one who has been cursed. Experiencing all the aspects of the curse that we feel and experience. And he is going to bear it. He is going to look like what Israel had become due to their sin. And the innocent one, the perfect one, is going to become sin for us. Let us go through this briefly. Verse 1, after the announcement of a servant who will bring salvation to the nations, verse 1 of 53, He says, who will believe this message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that when this term, the arm of the Lord being revealed, the associations that come to your mind are God's mighty acts of deliverance. Like the deliverance out of Egypt, right? He showed His power, His might, That he is a cosmic deliverer he has control over the universe over the seas over everything as he would destroy the enemies of god this is earth-shaking stuff so when we think about the great arm of the lord being seen we're expecting a great warrior a kung fu master to come in and and save the day but here we go we have a paradox again read verse 2 it's not a warrior but it is a child a young fragile little plant who needs to needs to grow up very surprising <laughs> if you're reading the flow of this passage like a root out of dry ground coming to the the cursed ground, and he's going to come up out of it. Brings us back to the Christmas passage, Isaiah 11, that a righteous branch, a root, is going to rise up and is going to bear fruit. Continuing on, the second part of verse 2, there's no form or majesty to attract us to him, no beauty... That we should desire him. Let that sink in for a moment. If aliens were to come and do some research and say, hey, what are, what are these human being people, what are they obsessed about? I have a really good feeling that one of the, one of the top things on their list would be an obsession with Beauty. An obsession with appearance. If you actually go to our new church building at Iowa Boulevard, um, one of the main ways that we're going to tell people how to find our church is we're going to tell them go to Dr. Chong's Clinic. You'll see a great big sign Dr. Chong's Clinic. Now, interestingly enough, you look up this clinic and you'll find 13 doctors. Like, wow, okay, this is an impressive place. But it's not for health. It's for beauty, aesthetics. Interestingly enough, the website says this. We invite you to look younger and radiant. Ooh, isn't that nice? Get back your healthy skin. This is a place where science meets art and achieves the epitome of Skin, beauty, and health. Yes. Yes. This is what we are about as a humanity. And like it or not, we've all fallen prey to the celebrity culture. That youthfulness, young, doesn't matter who you are, we're all being influenced by this. We're all drawn to beauty. There's nothing wrong with beauty. God has made the world beautiful and he is the one who gives beauty but we have an obsession an ungodly fixation upon beauty and appearance the rich what do they buy what do they spend their money on on the most beautiful car the ferrari the lamborghini this beautiful But here's the thing. All this begs the question is, would we have completely missed Jesus? Would we actually, in fact, miss him today? It's easy to want to associate ourselves with the beautiful, right? In order to, for ourselves, feel beautiful and strong and proud, but here's the reality. You can't play these association games with Jesus. Um, actually, if you're following him, that you might get more beautiful, more wealthy, raise your sense of status in this world, you will not follow Jesus for long. Verse 3. He was despised. It says it at the beginning of verse 3. It'll say it at the end of verse 3. As you survey this word despised, it's most often used related to sin against God. For example, David, when he committed his act of adultery, it says that he despised God in this act. Now some of us might think of this as an extreme way of putting sin. I was recently talking to a cab driver and he was saying, I, don't describe my wrong, I wouldn't describe my wrongdoings as sin. And most in this world try to avoid this, the kind of nasty language that would surround our wrongdoings. But we must not lose sight, brothers and sisters, that sin is a personal act of defiance. That it is shameful to sin against an all good and perfect God. Now, some of us understand this when we begin to think of someone who shamefully sins against us in in public, right? Perhaps leaders of the country, right? They become despised when they sin against the people. They steal from the people. And here's the reality. We were the ones who stole from Jesus, yet He is the one who is being despised. We were worthy of being despised. He had no sin, and yet he is going to be despised. We don't like to be associated with despised people. I mean, think of it, guys. Come on, if Najib, you happen to see him before he went to jail. You happen to see him walking down the street, and you decide to get a selfie with him, and then you post it on Facebook, right? Bragging about how you saw in a Jeep. I don't think you're going to do that. <laughs> Most people are not going to do that. They're going to feel ashamed to make this kind of association with themselves. This is exactly how people would feel being next to Jesus. This is literally what his disciples did <laughs> they fled. They were ashamed to be associated with Him in His arrest. They literally hid their faces from Him. This is exactly what you and I have done. This is exactly what the world has done with Jesus. John 1.10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. It did not love Him it did not respect him. Now, why would he go through all of this miserable humiliation? Why? From birth to death? Verse 4. He would do it for you and I. Look at it with me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was humiliated in order to bear our griefs. Now, Pastor Wong spent much time on this, on how we have a sympathetic high priest, a sympathetic leader who gets down on our level. He understands and knows our deepest griefs and sorrows. And ironically, it is in those moments of grief and sorrow that we feel most uncomfortable about going to Jesus, isn't it? It's when we're so overburdened by the things of this life and grief and sorrow that we decide not to come to church. The grieving person isolates themselves. They have a hard time feeling like they can get out of bed. They feel ashamed. They feel as though they can't fit in with ordinary society because they're so weighed down with the cares and burdens of this life. But it is precisely those people that Jesus came to be with, to be near, to carry. So, the most sorrowful among us today, Jesus came for you. I was uh, assisting in a mercy situation. A few weeks back and uh, there was a woman in great need and a lady from our church uh, introduced me to her and so another Christian uh, Christian woman and a pastor would come along with me they they would live closer to this lady and we would get together and we would discover that this lady's husband is in the most desperate health condition he's been in the hospital for a long time and she's been caring for him all by herself it was clear that she was poor. It's very clear, very evident even from her, her clothing. Her funds were running out. She had no emotional or financial support from her family, from anyone, from friends. She was alone and she was destitute and her whole body was letting you know it. She could hardly stand. She was. She was crying so hard i was concerned that she was going to fall to the ground there we are in the hospital parking lot and i am worried about this lady and her being able to stand and 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 not fall and uh the tears are just flooding out and um and and you know when you're when you're crying that hard you know snot is just coming everything and you want to guess what that christian lady did to this lady that that she doesn't know. This non-believing woman. This lady just dripping in snot and sweat. She embraced her. She held her. And I thought, this is Jesus. This is what, this is just like Jesus, I was so moved and touched to see this lady's compassion, this lady's love. Friends, this is our Savior. This is our King. This is our great priest and prophet. He came to uphold the lowly. Do you know this about Jesus? Do you know this about Jesus? Deep down, is this the Jesus that you are following? He came like us to bear our griefs upon himself, to bear our sorrows upon himself. So brothers and sisters, go to him. Go to him, and he will grant you rest. He says, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come. He says, take my yoke upon you. And I was listening to an author who says, it's like someone throwing a life preserver and and someone saying, take this and put it on you. Nobody's going to be like, you know, no, I'm not going to take that. That'll be too heavy. (laughs) No, they desperately cling to that yoke. They desperately cling to that. This is Jesus. So all who are needy come to Him. He is what we need. He is what the world desperately needs. Now the story gets even more sad. um, Even as Christ presents Himself to us as the one who is present in our sorrowful and sinful condition, it says in the second half of verse 4, I'll read it in the NIV, Yet... We esteemed him punished by God rather than being comforted, recognizing that he is one who is like us. No, we said, no, I'm not that bad. I'm not in that desperate of a situation. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Yet in the middle of that kind of rejection, we read verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Famous passage, you know it. But we need to meditate on it as his, as his people. Next verse, we like sheep have all gone astray. His people went astray. Not just the unbeliever out there, not just the Babylonians. His people went astray. It was not just the Jews who despised Him, who put Him on the cross. It was not just the Romans. It was not just the non-Christians out there. You and I have despised Him. You and I have treated him shamefully. And brothers and sisters, have you felt the weight of that rejection? There is nothing more shameful than to reject the one who is being the most compassionate toward you. Right? This is why it's so shameful to disobey your parents and dishonor your parents. Because they're the ones who brought you into this world, right? They're the one who fed you, took care of you. How much more the eternal Son of God who created you, created this world, and all good that you experience is from Him who is able to meet you in your deepest distress, your greatest need. How can you turn away that kind of love? How can you turn away that kind of love? Now, verse 5 highlights that our need is not just emotional felt needs. Our Savior has come to deal with our sin. I don't think we can overemphasize the importance of this verse. We've read it a hundred times. But we need to understand the humiliation that he experienced. <laughs> Remember the drunken man? The depiction of, of Israel as a drunken man through the, going through the streets? It's described as someone who's afflicted for their own sin and their own folly. They're afflicted by judgment and yet there's this incredibly striking change. Chapter Again, back to chapter 51, verse 22. Incredibly shocking. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of His people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering... The cup of my wrath you shall drink no more. Did you catch that? The Israelite reading this is is recognizing we messed up big. They should be. Hundreds of years later, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading this with Philip, and he's recognizing I messed up big. And as we read this passage today, we should be saying, I messed up big. It's worse than I thought. We deserve terrible judgment. Yet here's this glorious promise. You will not drink the cup of judgment. You will not bear the humiliation of your sin. This is astonishing. Think about it, friends. You will not bear it those shameful deeds, those sins that you thought you could get away with and no one would see, God knows those sins. And though you deserve the shame that should come with that sin, yet Jesus Himself is going to bear it. He's going to bear the justice of God on our behalf. He is going to go to the cross and He is literally going to be pierced so that you and I can go free. As the wonderful hymn says by Horatius Bonar, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. His whole life, friends, His coming to this earth, to the cross, He suffered humiliation and He suffered it for us. Would you not come to Him today and receive mercy and find rest for your souls? Would you not identify yourself with the suffering servant, with the man of sorrows? Now God is calling us to walk a similar path. Following Christ will come with some humiliation, it will come with some shame. But be sure of this, it is nothing compared to what Christ has done for you to take away the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate shame from you. So we walk the way of the cross, we become like him, we become a servant, not concerned about appearance, not concerned about status in this world, and we seek to follow Christ till the end and it is this suffering servant who will bring his group of sufferers sinners who have been redeemed he is going to bring them all the way home to glory Our faith centers on what Jesus has done in history for us. Redemption accomplished. It's done. It's finished. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Your faith is in his death. In what he did to take away your guilt, to take away your shame. What a Savior. Man of sorrows. What a name. We're going to sing it in just a little bit. What a name. What a king. I can't help but think of 2 Corinthians 5.21, probably the most striking passage in all the Bible. Again, one that's quoted very often. We talked about it even in our CG last night. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus in every way looked like a sinner. He looked like an evil, wicked man, though He was innocent. His cries on the cross might have made you think, He was a sinful man. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No sin. But he was bearing our sin. Now the weight of that, we can't. We can't fully imagine. I was listening to a teacher talk this week, and he he was saying, you know, we talk so much about the physical death, but the emotional death, pain of bearing our sin, surely that killed him. What love, what love, friends. We come here to this table to just just meditate on his love. Friends, we so easily get it mixed up. We so easily think we have a distant king We think we have maybe an arrogant priest or a prophet who just gives law he doesn't know us this is not the prophet priest and king that we've learned about in the last three sermons this is not the prophet priest and king that we have he is gentle he is lowly scripture tells us come to him and find rest man of sorrows what a name bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood hallelujah what a savior guilty vile and helpless we spotless lamb of God was he full atonement can it be hallelujah what a savior so if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ Come with your dirty clothes. Come with your dirty clothes. Come with your shame. Come with your sorrow, your heaviness, your grief. We have a Savior who is able to hold you. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we would urge you to come to Him. Come to Him. Now, we are given a stern warning that those who have not placed their trust in Christ to cover their sin and their shame, they should not partake of this meal. If that is you, we would ask that you would refrain, but that you would not refrain for long, that you would come to Christ, that you would talk to us. Children, let me remind you that you are children of the covenant, you have a blessed place in this community. God has put a special mark on you. But also you should note that with this particular meal, God has told us that we should be able to examine our sin and be able to examine Jesus. So we want to make sure that you've done that. And so we want to to have conversations with you about that. We know that some of you are likely already trusting in Christ. But we would also ask you to wait. To wait and spend this time examining your own heart, asking God to show you your sin and show you how great of a Savior He is. Okay, children. Okay, all right. Let us let us pray. Our Father, um, Lord, what a glorious message of hope to a suffering world broken by the curse that has come upon us due to sin, Father, how amazing that You would send Christ Your Son. How amazing that He would come so willingly and so freely give of Himself in the midst of our mess bearing our shame and guilt upon himself. Father, move us to praise. Move us to love. Deep affection for our great Savior and Lord. Father, shape your people. Mold your people today, we pray. Christ's name.